welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this installment of the People, Places, Planet miniseries, celebrating the winners of the 2023 National Wetlands Awards. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. The National Wetlands Awards are presented annually to individuals who have excelled in wetlands protection, restoration, and education. Through coordinated media outreach, educational events, and an award ceremony in Washington, D.C., awardees receive national recognition and attention for their outstanding efforts. Today, I will be speaking with Scott Fisher, this year's Local Stewardship Award winner. Scott Fisher is the director of the Aina Stewardship at Hawaii Land Trust, or HILT, where he works to restore wetland ecosystems. He has become one of Hawaii's most prominent and impactful researchers and conservation advocates, spearheading HILT's efforts to protect nearly 22,000 acres in Hawaii to date. Scott has focused many of his doctoral and postdoctoral studies on HILT's preserves to understand the land's ancient history and inform future stewardship. Most notably, Scott has been researching natural bioshields at the Hilt Nu'u Refuge on Maui in an effort to protect the area's delicate wetlands. Scott's current PhD assesses evidence of high-energy marine inundation events, such as tsunamis and large storms, to better assess coastal vulnerabilities. He is conversant in the Hawaiian language, centers community involvement in all his efforts, and is working to cultivate a love of the land, leading to a commitment to caring for the land. For instance, he regularly leads hikes through Talk Story on the Land, a free public education initiative engaging hikers in the history of sustainable indigenous land management. Scott studied at Colorado State University. His graduate work includes an MA in Peace Studies with a concentration in Native Hawaiian strategies of peacemaking and reconciliation. His PhD explored the dynamics of post-conflict recovery in a civil war on the island of Bougainville, Papua New Guinea. Scott, thank you for joining me. Ah, Aloha. Thanks so much for having me. So to get us started, can you just give us an overview of your wetlands work? Yeah, actually, yeah, thank you. My wetlands work basically focuses on three things, three dynamics. And one, of course, is research, as you as you mentioned. Right now, I'm working a lot on forested bioshields. How can we protect our coastal wetlands from, as you mentioned, high energy marine inundation events? The second is the work in the field. And that is the heart of ecological restoration. So ecological restoration, which is part of my academic background, is restoring the structure, function and composition of an ecosystem in order to produce higher productivity, more native species in particular, higher biodiversity and resilience to these disturbance patterns. And the third is connecting people to land, education. And as you pointed out, there's the talk story on the land series. And so I lead on any given year, about 35 to 45 public hikes. They're basically open to anyone. Anybody can call me and they're on the island. I, I just set it up, it's, you know, two, three hour hike talking about the whole trajectory of the wetlands and the refuge, why wetlands are so important, why are the aina uh, around the wetlands, the land around the wetlands is so important. We're aware of the fact that people will only protect those things that they know. And so if we can connect people to the land, we can actually cultivate that sense of aloha aina, of, of love of the land. 
And through that love of the land, then we can know that our work will be perpetuated, ho'omau, perpetuated from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's my big concern, of course, like as any person who works in the environment, is that the next ge- generation, the subsequent generations, won't have that same sense of aloha'ina. And so what we can do then is to share our love of the land and hope to perpetuate that. I mean, that sounds awesome. I, I want to go on one of the hikes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I'm in Hawaii, I'll, Absolutely. I'll, I'll ask. Absolutely. Please do. Yes, yes. <laughs> but so you were just talking about getting the next generation inspired. How did you get inspired to yeah. be involved in this work? You know, my fa- I come from a family who was very much an outdoor family. My family had been in sugarcane since the 1860s in Hawaii. And so I'm kind of the first generation out, but my dad had a deep love of the of the outdoors and so took the time to teach us fishing and hunting and, and hiking. And then I enlisted in the Marine Corps and I served in the first Gulf War and the incredible destruction of that both in human terms and and in terms of the environment, hundreds of oil fires, oil poured directly into the Persian Gulf. So that is what got me reflecting on how are we interacting? How are we relating to the earth? My first job post-Marine Corps was working with the Nature Conservancy, which really got me a start in working in these very beautiful remote areas of Maui. And then uh, went off to school, probably stayed a little too long <laughs> so <laughs> in school and loved it and loved learning and realized that I love learning. And a job opportunity, just as I was finishing up my PhD, came up on Maui, and that was almost 20 years ago. What makes your work different from some of our other award winners? You are our local stewardship award yeah. winner, and so you really are working very locally. Yes. So put it in your own words. Yeah. What makes your, your work unique? The volunteers really make it. So we, we work in two ways. In areas where my colleagues know that they'll be there every Friday, we can call out and just say, look, there's going to be a set time when those volunteers can come. Whereas I, you know, sometimes my schedule gets a little bit flexible. So I kind of say it'll be Wednesday, Thursday or Friday. Sometimes I get none and sometimes I get six. And Mm so uh, on a on a given week and then we do quarterly volunteer work. And what we've done is, you know, camping is something that people really love to do in Hawaii. It's definitely an opportunity for people to connect with the land. So it really gets at the heart of what we want to do. So we've linked our volunteer with our camping program. So in order to camp, you have to just volunteer once. And we want people to understand why we're doing what's important. And when you, as we say in Hawaii, if you turn your hands into the soil, you really get a good sense of why these areas are so special. The amount of work that can get done in a four-hour period by 60 people is really incredible. Mm-hmm. So. Well... I want to ask another question about local stewardship. So obviously anybody who does works in wetlands and the environment is really tied to the place that they mm-hmm. called home. Yeah. But your work, you know, as the local steward, maybe more intrinsically so. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Hawaii in general. You've been an advocate for centering community and indigenous knowledge for wetland conservation in Hawaii. Why is this so important? Yeah. So, you know, Hawaii has sort of a, a dubious distinction of being the extinction capital of the United States. And that's not something that we really want, yet it is a reality. We're down to about 20 native birds, excluding seabirds, left in the islands. When the first people arrived a little over a thousand years ago, there's about 109, perhaps even more than that. And so we've, we've experienced some serious losses and some serious gaps in our ecosystems. And yet 
if you look at what we call Kapo'i Kahiko, the people of old, how they lived, it was largely sustainable. There was definitely, and I, I teach a course called Tradition and Sustainability at the, the University of Hawaii Maui College. And you can see that the practices implemented by the people of old, Kapo'i Kahiko, really enhanced the sustainability and since the introduction of ungulates, a whole suite of invasive species were really losing those species at an incredibly rapid rate. And so what we want to do is slow them down, slow that down, stop it if possible, of course. And getting people tied to the land is how you do that. I know that your work goes beyond just the local context as well. So I kind of have a two-pronged question. I want to hear more about your work in BioShields, and I know that's primarily an in effect at the new campus, but you've also had some work that's had implications far beyond Hawaii. So how do you kind of balance that local and international work and how does that scale? Yeah. So I've been very fortunate. Several years ago in 2019, the U.S. Forest Service contacted me and they were working on a project in Madagascar, in the Menabe province of Madagascar. And there they were having significant loss of mangroves, which in Hawaii is ironic because in Hawaii they're an invasive species. Mm. So we don't look at them with the same affection. In Menabe, what they're having is dramatic loss these mangrove wetlands in part due to the, the migration of these sand dunes. And so since my work at Waihei is looking at the interface between a sand dune and wetlands, when they contacted me, they wanted sort of my, my experiences to apply my experiences there. It's part of the Mikaji project, which is sponsored by USAID and of course the US Forest Service. Been down there twice and just amazing. It What's probably most inspiring is just like, in, just like on Maui, how eager people are to want to protect their environment, their ecosystems. Madagascar has some challenges like Hawaii. Those challenges can be met though. And and so that's what we see is like a, a, a galvanized group of committed people can really make a significant impact if they know how to do it and how to come together to to make it work. And so that's in Madagascar. I I also work, you know, I've been fortunate with the universities in England. I worked at the University of Leicester for three years uh, during the summers, looking at the paleoecology of Waihei. And so what was the ecosystem like, you know, 4,000 years ago? How did those changes over time affect the ecosystem? And what can we do to make it more resilient? So that's really the eye that I had it to. And of course, I'll be heading back to England in, in this summer to look at the forested bioshield project, basically looking at paleo tsunamis, tsunamis that occurred mostly prior to human arrival in order to understand how these tsunamis and big storms impact the coast and what we can do to prepare ourselves for future storms because we know climate change will bring more intense storms but also we'll often we'll have to contend with tsunamis yeah and that leads really well into my next question which was going to be about your work assessing those high energy marine inundation events such as tsunamis and large storms You talk about how this is a way to better assess coastal vulnerabilities. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, of course, coastlines, especially coastal wetlands, are particularly vulnerable, especially when we consider how much modifications have occurred. So, for example, in Hawaii, there used to be fairly dense forests surrounding our wetlands, which gave a a high degree of protection. Anthropogenic or human modifications have taken away those coastal forests in large part. And the ones that remain are largely invasive species, especially along the coast. And so you have 
a particular tree, which we call Chiave. It's Prosopis pallida. Uh, it's, a, it's native to the American Southwest, a great species there. But in Hawaii, it is highly invasive. It's also it's what we call a phreatophyte. So it's, it actually sucks up a lot of water. It's a desert adapted species. And so it sucks up a lot of water, lowering the water table. And so it has these, these effects in the Hawaiian Islands that are not beneficial. And so what we want to do is look at how can we restore our native coastal forest to provide as much protection. So that's where the forested bioshield idea comes in. So a forested bioshield is basically, it can be anything from just an, a forest in front of a wetlands, and in, in my case, in front of a wetlands, to, and this is what I'm doing, is a particular configuration of trees, shrubs, and herb layer species, including grasses, and that slow the energy of a wave down, whether it's a storm or a tsunami, slow the energy down and dissipate the sediment. Just as an example, what some of the research we're doing is in the 1960, a tsunami from Chile hit new quite hard we're piecing together that story because no one was around to see it there was there was a depopulated in the previous tsunami yeah. and so that 1960 event seems to have brought in a significant amount of sediment if that happens again we might lose the new wetlands altogether it's a small wetlands it's a disproportionately important though because it actually facilitates the travel between islands of at least two endangered species that's what we call the alaike okeo the hawaiian coot and the io the hawaiian stilt by just simply putting those trees around now it's a very specific configuration that i'm developing and i'm working on and i don't I won't know until the next tsunami whether it absolutely works. And th this is something you have to be, you know, there has to be some kind of epistemic humility, right? We just don't know. But the research from past tsunamis suggests that a total of 30 trees per 100 square meters combined with very hard trees at the front, more flexible trees in the interior, and then what we call, you know, those that capture sediment. So we have one particular tree. It's the Pandanus tectorius, or the what we call the hala, that has these prop roots or aerial roots that are just phenomenal for slowing down wave energy and stopping sediment. So we've made that kind of the, the core of this particular bioshield. And this is where connecting people to land comes in. I have to be sure that for 500 years, this particular forest is maintained and perhaps groomed and, and kept alive and healthy. If I walked away today within a few years 10 years would probably revert back to its mm. or you know invasive species yeah and you've really taken us full circle connecting the science and yes. the, the people being involved so thank you for that that's a great you're way welcome. to end the episode and thank you for joining me today yeah, you're welcome i had a great time thank you thank you for tuning in to people places planet pod brought to you by the environmental law institute we would like to hear from you so please send us your questions comments and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.